It is a joy to be with you this morning and to be able to turn once again to the book of 1 Corinthians and today to chapter 15. And I have personally looked forward very much to our time in this chapter for a long while. It is such a unique chapter in an already unique book. One of the first things that stands out about it is that it is long. At 58 verses, it is a full 18 verses longer than the next longest book or chapter in the book. It's also unique because it's so doctrinal. It spends almost all of that 58 verses focused on teaching doctrine and most of it on a single doctrine. And for that reason, for some, it has seemed a little bit out of place. Why is Paul just all of a sudden launching into such an extended discussion of the gospel and particularly of the resurrection? And as we prepare to dig into this glorious chapter, I wanted to start by sketching briefly what I think it's doing here. And first, it isn't actually a random topic at all because it is addressing a specific question and issue in the Corinthian church. During the preaching of the gospel from day one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ featured prominently. Jesus, who died for sins and was raised again, that was a part of the Christian proclamation of the gospel from the very beginning. It was not as common, however, to teach on what that meant for believers as far as what happens to them and their bodies after death. And that may be one of the reasons why a number of the New Testament early letters, including 1 Thessalonians for a specific example, deal significantly with the bodily resurrection of believers. You have to remember that as we're reading these books, they're being written now well over 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And some of those who had come to Christ even during his lifetime weren't exactly spring chickens at the time, and they're now going home to be with the Lord. And so as saints are beginning to go home, the question is becoming more urgent in the churches, how do we think about, how do we understand the afterlife of our brothers and sisters in Christ? And so that's going to become an issue that's going to become more pressing. This is further complicated by the fact that in the early church and in the ancient world in general, there tended to be a very negative view of physical things. Only the spiritual was considered to be good. And so as we're going to see in this very chapter, there was a vocal contingent in the Corinthian church actively denying the possibility of a bodily resurrection of the dead. So I think that's one of the reasons why this chapter is here, is to address a doctrine that hadn't been fully understood and that was coming under active attack from misguided believers. But I think there is a second reason this chapter is here. And I don't just mean here as in the book of 1 Corinthians, but here as in after chapter 14, at the climax of the book. We've been working through this book for a while now, and going through it chunk by chunk. And I think for many of us, there's a certain heaviness that has settled on us as we go through all of this teaching that Paul has been giving, especially after working through all of chapter 12 and all of chapter 14, largely dealing with similar things, starting to hear around the church this general desire of, can we come up for some fresh air? <laughs> Anybody else? Yeah, a few of you. <clears throat> Imagine, though, that you were in the church in Corinth, and this wasn't broken over in little chunks over many weeks, but this whole letter was being read to you all at once. All the issues, all the rebukes, all the appeals, all the corrections, all coming at you through a fire hose. And let's be honest, Paul has not been pulling his punches in this book. 
I don't think any of us have managed to escape without some area of sin or immaturity being confronted. But in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, notice that Paul does not bring this huge body of correction to a conclusion by, by finishing the Corinthians off, putting one last nail in their coffin. He could have moved from chapter 14 into one last blow from the law hammer or, or a guilt trip. He could have said, you know, how dare you call yourselves Christians if you're going to live in such miserable sin? Or how could God stand to have people like you and his family if this is the kind of gratitude you're going to show him for what he did for you in Christ? But that's not what he does. And, and if we're being honest, there is one last you fool in verse 36. But when we read chapter 15... It is not displeasure, it is not correction, it is not that staff of the shepherd that radiates off of these words. It is overwhelming hope and encouragement. And I think the Holy Spirit is directing this chapter to be placed here because of this. When we've been confronted with our sin, when our conscience has been pricked as it has been for the Corinthians and for us, our, our fleshly tendency is usually to run either towards despair or towards legalism, towards just giving up or towards fixing ourselves by ourselves. And what we need to be reminded of is the grace of God toward us in Christ Jesus and how that serves as the ground we walk on, the air that we breathe, the very strength of our soul for every step of the Christian life beginning to end. We need good news, gracious news, news heavy with promises for the present and the future. And this is what the erring Corinthians need to be directed to if they will have any hope of truly repenting and growing in Christ-likeness, which is what he's going to specifically call them to do in response to the gospel in the middle and at the end of this chapter. So if you want to get the big picture of how Paul's going to lay out his argument over these 58 verses, it's this. The gospel hinges on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus proves and requires the resurrection of believers from the dead. And the resurrection of believers will be gloriously similar to the resurrection of Jesus himself, so that we will share forever with him in a physical victory over death itself a fact so wonderful that as he will conclude in verse 58, it causes us to take courage in living for Christ right now each and every day. Amen? So with that in mind, I would now invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. As you're able, and if you're not, that's okay, but as you're able to stand to honor the reading of it, I'd invite you to do so. As we look at 1 Corinthians, our text this morning will be verses 1 and 2, but we will read down through verse 11. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. <laughs> for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Would you pray with me? Father, we would add our yes and amen to these words. You have sent your son as you promised. And he was crucified as you said he would be. And he was buried and he was raised again according to your word. And it is through him and the grace which comes through that sacrifice that we now can stand before you and call upon you as our father. And this we do this morning, asking that you would cause the gospel of your Son to grow more and more in us, that it would characterize all of our life, as we desire to look in everything like Christ. And this we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, we're only going to be looking at the first two verses this morning, but they lay out for us a brilliant summary of the way, as our sermon title says, the whole gospel is meant to affect our whole life. And that's my goal this morning. And I want us to all walk away with this thought. The gospel is a space shuttle, not a rocket booster. The gospel is a space shuttle, not a rocket booster. I think it's easy for us to think of the gospel like a rocket booster. And in this day and age, we've all seen not only the cool pictures, but we've seen like the videos of, of so many rocket launches. You've got those massive booster rockets that get the craft off the ground and, and arm wrestle gravity into submission. And then when that shuttle finally gets just about to orbit, the boosters fall off. They're huge. They're essential. But they're only temporary. Once the shuttle has gotten into a place where it can hold its own orbit, then their, their purpose has been accomplished. And I think we can view, view the gospel like that, that it's essential. Of course, it is the message that we believe that gets our spiritual lives off the ground and up into Christian orbit. And then with all due respect to the wonderful gospel, it's time to move on now. And now we're going to read the other parts of our Bible. And now we're going to figure out how to live the Christian life through other means and chart our course. But that's not how the scripture portrays the gospel. It isn't a booster that we just need to get going in the Christian life. The gospel is the shuttle that we ride in. We need it to take off. We need it to get into orbit. We need it to fulfill our mission. And we need it to get back home. And so look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 2. And let's break these verses down into four truths about the gospel that demonstrate why we need the whole gospel for our whole life. And we'll begin with this. If you're taking notes this morning, this is your first blank. The gospel requires words. In verse 1, Paul writes this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. With that word now, he announces his transition to a new topic, as we just discussed. 
through most of chapter 12 and chapter 14, Paul was dealing with chaos in corporate worship, with misuses of spiritual gifts, misunderstandings of roles, with people getting right on top of each other and making noise instead of edification. And he's been wrapping that all up together with this simple summary. Whatever you do in corporate worship must be done in an orderly fashion and for the edification of all. And having wrapped that up then, he transitions to this new topic that, notice, is going to be a topic of teaching. He introduces it by saying, I make known to you. This is not a rebuke. This is not a commandment. This is not even merely informing. He's about to take a topic that he wants to discuss and help them to truly understand it. Much more than intellectual formation, this is about worldview formation. It's not just a script that they're going to hear, but a truth that must be taken into the heart. And you mothers today, I'm sure, have stories about the difference between children who hear and children who understand what you are declaring to them. And so Paul says, I want to make this understood, known among you. And notice this, this thing he is revealing is not primarily for unbelievers, but for believers. Who's he talking to? Not the unsaved in Corinth, but to his brethren. And, and Paul here using that term brethren is once again emphasizing his partnership, his love, his care for the Corinthians. I think I would have been tempted to introduce this topic saying, now I'm going to try to explain this one last time for you, you turkeys. But Paul, as he has already done over 20 times in this letter, isn't distancing himself from this church, but drawing close to it and associating and identifying himself with them as the family of God. And that is what the gospel does. It connects us with one another, even if, like the Corinthians, they're struggling with divisions and strife. But consider, as Paul does direct this to the brethren, that means then that Paul is not primarily giving the Corinthians a speech on how to evangelize their lost neighbors. He is making the gospel known to them for their benefit. And so he gets to the gospel, which I preach to you. Finally, the object of this sentence. What is Paul making known again? It is the gospel. What gospel? The gospel which was preached. And though Paul has not yet gotten into the content of the gospel, he here reveals how the gospel comes to us. And it is through words. Two things are necessary for the gospel to be good news. There must be the historical reality of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Without that, the gospel is fake news. But there must also be the declaration of that reality through words, or you don't have any news. In every age, I think there is a temptation because of the awkwardness of confrontation and not wanting to stand out to have a, a show, not tell approach to, to gospel work. As we are sometimes fond of saying, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Well, brothers and sisters, where there have been no words given, there has been no gospel preached. The words can be English or Mandarin. They can be yelled on a busy street corner or signed silently with your hands. They can be printed on a page or displayed on a screen 
But the gospel cannot begin its work in us until the information about Jesus and his work has been communicated. The gospel is not a mystical experience you encounter. It's not a feeling that just happens. It is belief in information which is true. And that means if Christ had died wordlessly, we would still perish hopelessly. And if we only live righteously, our neighbors will enter eternity, perhaps rather impressed with us, but still lost in their sins. Paul spoke to this elsewhere this way in Romans 10:14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That preacher does not have to be a pastor with a fancy degree, but it has to be somebody who will speak true words about Jesus Christ to others. And so let us never be embarrassed of the words, of the message of the gospel, nor tire of declaring it in its fullness, whether that's to unbelievers or even to fellow believers. And speaking of belief, that takes us to our second observation this morning. The gospel not only is that which must be preached, but the gospel demands belief. Paul goes on to say, this gospel which I preach to you and which also you received. For the gospel to be good news, yes, it must come to us in the form of words, but that then presents us with a choice that must be made. After all, there is a difference between a good menu and a good meal. A good menu is not a good meal. The food actually has to arrive at your table on a plate, and you actually have to eat it and swallow it. If you don't believe me, then you can put this to the test. Those of you who have planned to take your mother or your wife out for a nice meal today, you can let her to know as, as a way of honoring her frugality. You've canceled your reservation, and instead you've downloaded the menu off the Internet, and you are going to read it tenderly to her. <laughs> it won't be quite the same thing, will it? Paul is able to call the Corinthians brethren because he knows they did not only hear the message of the gospel, they laid hold of it. They not only heard Paul's words, but they took those words, and by the grace of God, they made them their own. As Romans 10, 9 outlines, they were not only able to confess truth with their mouths, but they believed those truths in their heart. The gospel requires the historical reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to be good news. It requires the proclamation of that historical reality with words in order to be good news. But even then, it isn't your good news until you believe it. And so to go back to our earlier illustration, you can know more about space shuttles than any NASA engineer ever, but until you climb inside one yourself, you're not going to space. I do not want to take for granted that all who are gathered here even this morning have believed in the gospel, even the gospel that they know. You might even be a life group leader, but still just going through the motions of serving a meal that you've never actually tasted yourself. Or a kid that's been growing up in this church your whole life, and maybe you even like coming but it represents a tradition you do and not a truth you believe. 
throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, he warned again and again that just because you've been constantly around the gospel, it doesn't mean the gospel has been in you. MacArthur lists some of these in his commentary when he says, Our Lord repeatedly spoke of sham believers who had useless, non-saving faith. The parable of the sower tells us that some of the seeds of the gospel fall on shallow or weedy soil, and that tares often look like wheat but are not. Jesus spoke of many kinds of fish being caught in the same net, with the good being kept and the bad being thrown away. He spoke of houses without foundations, virgins without oil for their lamps, and servants who wasted their talents and so were cast out. He warned of gates and paths that seem right but that lead to destruction. If we are to receive the gospel preached, then it must move through what the reformers often referred to as three different steps in the process of belief. Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Notitia or knowledge. We must know certain things. You cannot call on God in the merits of Jesus Christ if you don't know that that happened. And so truth must come to us, and that knowledge must be gained. And that knowledge is gained when it is proclaimed by others. But simply having the knowledge of the answer is not the same thing as belief. That knowledge must progress to assent, where you declare that what I now know, I accept, I assent to as being true. Not only have I heard the story of Jesus, but I affirm that he was actually a historical reality. And so I will declare that what God has said is true. But here's where I'm concerned. It is possible that somebody can have all the knowledge and all the assent and not be a believer. How do I know this? Because that describes every demon. As James warned us, the demons believe, and because they know it's true, they tremble. For us to receive the gospel is more than just, yeah, I believe Jesus came, but it's the placing of fiducia, of faith, in that believed message to trust in it in a way where you have committed yourself to that truth, to not simply say that Jesus died for sinners, but that Jesus is my king. I love him, and it is my ambition in life to follow him. And now we have received and not just heard the gospel how tragic it would be that there would be some here this morning who have not yet experienced new life in Christ, even though they know the gospel, even though they may even assent to the gospel, but they have never in faith participated in the gospel. And speaking of faith, that brings us to our third gospel truth this morning, and that is this. The gospel must be preached to us in words. The gospel is that which demands our belief. And thirdly, the gospel sustains faith. Paul goes on to say, not only have you received this gospel, this is the gospel in which also you stand. And here we turn a corner, and it's here that I think some of us will be reminded that the gospel isn't done with us when we get saved. 
The verb to stand here is in a tense that refers to something that did begin in the past, but is having ongoing, continuing effects in the present. And I love this parallel passage where Paul is going to give us the exact same principle he is here, but he's going to use a different word than gospel. In Romans 5, he says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, therefore, having understood that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that he suffered the wrath of God, that he conquered that in his resurrection, and that by calling upon God for forgiveness in Jesus' name, you can have forgiveness and God can declare you not guilty. Therefore, having experienced that reality, we're not done yet. Verse 2, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into, and here's what he calls it here, this grace in which we stand, using the exact same phrasing about standing that he uses in 1 Corinthians. And we exult or rejoice exceedingly in hope of the glory of God. There is no way to make a meaningful distinction between standing in the gospel and standing in grace. They are both ways of speaking about the ongoing reality of remaining the ongoing recipient of unmerited favor. The gospel then is not merely the wicket gate by which Pilgrim begins his journey on the king's way. It's not merely the sign that points to the cross on the hill where his burden rolls away. It's the entirety of the road and all of the helps along the way that lead all the way to the celestial city. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, we sang this morning. And when we ponder what the Almighty can do, that pondering will be one of two things, guessing or gospel. Whatever we think correctly, about our standing before God and how we are to live the Christian life, this is gospel truth. All of it. Because the gospel is not only concerned with our justification. And I think this is one of the great errors of evangelicalism today is that we tend to think of the gospel as this thing that is only connected to our evangelism. And yes, it's necessary for that. It is necessary that a sinful person hears the message of the gospel in such a way that they become aware, awakened to a knowledge of their sin, that because they have a sinful nature that is evidenced by their sinful acts of rebellion against God, they stand apart from him and spiritually dead, and that there's nothing they can do about that other than that God has sent his son to be the perfect God-man. And that through the righteousness of his life and through the atoning work of his death, through him bearing all of the wrath of God, we now have one that we can plea to, that we can call upon for forgiveness and say, God, would you forgive me, the sinner, because of the merits of your son, Jesus Christ? And when we do that, we are declared instantly in the court of heaven, not guilty. That is justification. And the temptation is to think, and that's what the gospel is for, is to get us to that point. The gospel is also very concerned with our sanctification. 
that process by which we, having been made alive in Christ, having been given his Holy Spirit, who begins to produce his fruit within us, are then transformed day by day more into the image of Christ as we learn to die to sin and to live to righteousness. Some of you may have had that moment in your life when you came to Christ, and it was that crisis in your heart where you finally said, I want Christ and you gave your life to Christ, you said, okay, it's not about me anymore. I'm dead. It's all about you. And you thought to yourself, tomorrow's going to be so much easier. Right? And then you woke up the next morning, your flesh was like, it's war. Right? We still want what we shouldn't want. We still do what we shouldn't do. We still find ourselves over and over again in that little eddy of Romans 7, dealing with this body of death. And that's what the gospel is for, too. Which brings us to our final gospel truth this morning. The gospel transforms sinners. Paul goes on to say, this gospel I preach to you, this gospel that you receive, this gospel in which you stand, this gospel, verse 2, by which also, and this I think is a better rendering here, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice it does not say this gospel by which you were saved, but rather by which you are being saved. It's something that's happening now in an ongoing way. And you may have been around the church long enough. You're saying, wait, I know the Sunday school answer here. Once saved always saved. And that's a true statement, but it only covers one third of your salvation. The scriptures speak of salvation as a story in three parts. We've already mentioned two. First, there is our justification, whereby God declares us not guilty and frees us forever from the penalty of sin when we call on him for forgiveness on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when that has happened, can that ever change? No. So if you really want to be persnickety, maybe we should say once justified, always justified. That's true. But our salvation is not yet complete. In fact, our justification just begins the majority of gospel's work in our lives when it brings us into this place where we begin, as I said, to be transformed into the image of Christ. Not only are we being freed from the penalty of sin in a moment through justification, but over the course of our life, we are being progressively freed from the power of sin over us as we learn to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And that is gospel work. But even that process is not the totality of our salvation. Because justification, which gives way to sanctification, freedom from the penalty of sin, which gives way to the freedom from the power of sin. I know most of you know this outline and can preach it, but these are, these are precious truths, aren't they? That gives way to glorification. And that is when salvation will reach its completion. When we are made perfect and when we in our resurrected bodies are able to finally fulfill the dream of scripture, which is that God would be our people and dwell among us and we would be his and dwell with him 
in righteousness forever. And until that has happened, the promises of our salvation are not yet fulfilled. Our salvation is not yet complete. And so we were saved in our justification. We are being saved in our sanctification. We will be saved in our glorification. The the penalty of sin is gone. The power of sin is weakening and the presence of sin will be eradicated. And that's all gospel work. Paul is helping the Corinthians realize that this entire process is gospel truth. And sadly, Paul knows some who think that they're part of that process are not. That some are deceived. And so he warns them, this gospel is continuing to save you if, if what you have placed your faith in is the word that I preached you. And if it isn't, then your faith is in vain. When Paul looks at some of the Corinthians, he sees in them such ongoing, unrepentant sin, such profound fruitlessness. He says, there is grave concern about the condition of your soul. The word he uses here about their faith being in vain is different than the word he uses in verse 10, verse 14, twice, and in verse 58. In those verses that we'll get to later, he is talking about something that was possessed and then found to be empty or found to be void or found to be useless. And if that was the word he used here, we might be getting concerned that Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, I'm concerned that some of you got saved, but you're just making such of a mess of it that you're going to lose it that your salvation might slip through your fingers. But that is not what he's saying. The word he uses for vain here is a word that means something that happened with no cause or reason, something that happened with no success or result, something that happens without purpose or to no purpose, and something being without careful thought, without due consideration, and in a haphazard manner. So this is not the language of losing our salvation. It's the language of not having ever understood what the gospel was in the first place. In other words, Paul's concern that some of the Corinthians confused an explosion of emotions with the thrust of a rocket taking off. If you see a tree with a sign on it that says apples, but it only bears oranges every year, you're not going to go, hmm, that tree has lost its appleness. You're going to rightly conclude it was mislabeled. And there is no deception more cruel and more dangerous than to think you have peace with God when you do not. The author of Hebrews warns in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, they've been so close to gospel truth for so long and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And in Matthew 7, Jesus himself warned us, you know this well. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And then I will declare to you, says Jesus, I never what? Knew you. Depart from me, you who practice 
lawlessness. I want to be careful here because I'm concerned this warning will be taken in the wrong direction. There may or may not be some of us that tend to overthink things. And the temptation with a passage like this is to immediately go into a crisis of faith and say, when I asked God for forgiveness through Jesus Christ, did I mean it enough? Was I emotional enough? Did I use the right words? Did I mess up the formula? And this week was a really lousy week. I was just walking in sin. And last week was a pretty good week, which means the chart is going downwards, which means did I, did I just prove I'm not saved? What Paul is not trying to do here is tell the Corinthians, you know, the gospel is just so intricate. It's just so complicated. It's just so nuanced that you guys just need to be constantly going back and trying to make sure that you didn't somehow mess it up. No, the gospel is simple. And the gospel is clear. But the gospel is exclusive. And what is being addressed here is that you cannot substitute the gospel for osmosis. You can't simply be around the church. The, you, are, you have no gospel if you are just part of a Christian family. You're, you're not a part of the gospel just because you're involved in Christian ministry. The gospel is not something you've placed your faith in just because you can recite all the Bible verses and you've memorized all the outlines. Or even, as, as Jesus said, you, you cannot claim to know the gospel just because you've done amazing things in the name of Jesus, including like casting out demons. None of those things are the gospel. The gospel is the message of forgiveness through Jesus Christ alone by faith. If that's what your faith is in, then you've received it. The word which was preached. And you will stand in it. And you will be being saved by it until it reaches completion. And you might say, but my heart is so weak and so say we all. And there are so many days that all of us have to cry out to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief. But whether your faith feels great or small, if it is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, he will hold you fast. And if it is not in the finished work of Jesus Christ, no matter how impressive your life looks and no matter how confident you are, you are yet lost. That's what Paul is saying. So this verse should not terrify the one who is hurting but in Christ, but it should wake up the one who walked in perhaps this morning thinking, I'm fine, but whose faith is not in Jesus Christ alone. For us to understand the gospel in all of its fullness means that we need to receive the message by faith, stand in that truth every day as we continue to be saved. It is to acknowledge the gospel as the only truth and as our full truth from first hearing to glorification. It is to realize that the Christian life is the whole of the gospel for the whole of life and not to put it in a box. And we will see in the next 56 verses how that will bring us all the way to glory by the grace of God. Would you pray with me? Father, what wondrous love is this 
I pray that we would see all that you've given us as good news. That everything that pertains to us being a disciple of Christ, from us first hearing of his work, to be becoming baptized in his name, to being taught to observe all that he has commanded us, that we would see all of that as good news by which through grace we are being saved. And so we pray that even as you have been pleased for many of us to justify us already in the past, Lord, continue your work in us and make us enthusiastic participants in walking by your Spirit and being sanctified day by day. And Lord, by the hope of the gospel, we look forward to the return of your Son and our glorification with him. And so in that confidence and with that plea, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.